So all names have a meaning, or at least most do. Maybe you know the meaning of your name. Maybe you don't. If not, I encourage you to learn it and maybe live into it. My name, Matthew, means gift of God. <laughs> a little grandiose, maybe. Um, I mean, really, aren't all children gifts of God, all people gifts of God, right? My parents, I don't think, really had that in mind exactly when they gave me this name. They thought it was a really unique, one-of-a-kind name. And, and it was for a little while. In my hometown, I was the only Matt for miles and miles and miles, and then we moved. And I was like one of many, many Matts just in my own class. I did a little research on my name, and I found that the popularity of the name Matthew took a real nosedive in the 1990s, I guess because there was such a glut of the name. And um, however, in, in Spanish-speaking countries, the Spanish version of Matthew, Mateo, is still a very, very uh, popular name. Maybe none of this matters so much. I mean, as we approach Valentine's Day, right, and two of the most famous Valentines, Romeo and Juliet. Juliet famously said to Romeo, who didn't have a very agreeable name to her people, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, hold that in mind as we spend a little time breaking down the name above every name. Some things I'm about to lay down that you probably have not heard in church ever before, beginning with Jesus' name was not Jesus. Nobody ever called him Jesus. Jesus was not a name that likely was ever heard by the person we now call Jesus. Jesus' actual name was Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua in English. And Yeshua simply means God saves, God saves. And Yeshua or Joshua was a very famous hero of the ancient Israelites way before Jesus. So in the time of Jesus, Yeshua, a lot of boys received this name. And, and Joshua is still actually a very popular name. I imagine that when Mary stuck her head out the door and called Yeshua in for dinner, a lot of boys stopped to listen. Now, how do we get from Yeshua to Jesus? Well, when Yeshua gets translated into Greek, the language of the New Testament, it becomes Yosis. And eventually, the I developed a tail and became a J, and the O dropped out, and we got Jesus. That's the short story, the short version of that. Okay, here's the second little revelation. Christ is not Jesus's or Yeshua's last name. Right, you knew that already. He was not born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ is a title, and it's a title that Jesus, Yeshua, rarely and reluctantly adopted for himself. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and Christos is a sort of awkward translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, or Messiah, and Messiah simply means anointed. 
because kings of Israel, right when they became king, they were, they were not really coronated in the way we think of it today. They had oil anointed, poured on their head from a ram's uh, horn, and that designated them as uh, chosen by God to lead the people. Christ, Christos, Messiah, anointed. Now, here's the big bombshell of the morning. Fasten your seatbelts. Jesus, therefore, is not the only person named Christ in the Bible. There are, in fact, many Christs throughout Scripture. Because everyone who was anointed with oil and designated to lead the people, they also were called Christ. We don't call King David, David Christ, but we could because he's repeatedly referred to as God's anointed, as God's Christ. Even a foreign king, a Persian king, a Gentile, King Cyrus, is called God's anointed in the book of Isaiah because he did something really special and powerful and wonderful for the people of Israel, and therefore he is crowned as God's Christ, as God's anointed. Now, why is this... Uh, fact in plain sight not talked about or discussed in, in church or really anywhere else? Well, probably because we're concerned, particularly in Christian circles, that we might therefore lower the status of Christ if we're very open about the fact that there are lots of Christ in the Bible and that Jesus is no different. Well, that could be one outcome, but I think actually when we look at them, there are some incredible and really important differences to Jesus Christ or Yeshua Messiah relative to the other Christs or Messiahs in the Bible. There are important historical differences, important theological differences, and there's some really important differences in the way that Jesus, Yeshua, lived into this title of Christ or Messiah in ways that the others did not. And I want to highlight just three of them for you this morning very quickly. First, Jesus, Yeshua, had no interest in being a king in the earthly sense of the word of having a country with borders that you got to protect with your army and having faithful, loyal subjects that you rule over and are there to, at your beck and call. That was not of interest to Jesus, to Yeshua. Jesus was all about a kingdom of an entirely different sort, and instead of having loyal subjects, he wanted faithful followers on his way, his way of love. So that's the first difference. Jesus was not interested in kingship in the earthly sense of the word relative to other Christ or Messiahs in the Bible. Number two, Jesus was a teaching Messiah, a healing Messiah, a storytelling Messiah, not a warrior Messiah or a political Messiah. His teaching, uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount last week and this week, that's kind of a distillation or a crystallization of his core teaching. If you've ever been to a march and you heard or you found yourself chanting, what does democracy look like? This is what democracy looks like. What does following Jesus look like? The Sermon on the Mount is what following Jesus looks like. So that's number two. Jesus was a teaching Messiah, not so much a political or warrior Messiah. And the third thing that distinguishes Jesus Christ from other Christ in the Bible is that his teaching was all about love. 
and not just love, but radical love, took love to an entirely different level. You heard it from the reading. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Seriously? Love our enemies? That was a new idea. I mean, this business of loving our neighbors, that's already written in the Hebrew Scriptures. You'll find some version of that in virtually every religious tradition. But love your enemies? That is new and totally different and unique to Yeshua. The question might come up, okay, well, if I'm supposed to love my enemies, who is my enemy? Well, Jesus doesn't define that. I'm going to do my best. According to me, an enemy is not our opponent in business or on the field or on the court. You know, the eagles and, and the, the chiefs are not enemies, they're opponents, right? An enemy is somebody who intentionally does us harm such that we are moved to retaliate and seek vengeance and maybe even hurt them the way that we've been hurt and maybe even more so to teach them a lesson. That's how we know we have an enemy because something's happened and we are inspired to vengeance and to retaliate. It's very normal. I think it's completely common to every person's experience to have that kind of vengeful impulse, which means this teaching of Jesus is incredibly difficult and goes against the grain. But I also think there's something, there's sort of like a spiritual jujitsu going on here, a spiritual like turning of the tables. Because in order to love our enemy, really in order to love anybody, we have to first know them. In order to love somebody, you have to know them. You have to know their story. You have to know their pain and their joys, their ups and downs. You gotta walk in their shoes. Which means as soon as we really love our enemy, they cease to be an enemy once we've loved them. Now, that doesn't dismiss or excuse the harm that they've caused. That still remains, and hopefully there's an opportunity for uh, confession and, and maybe redemption. But when we walk in our enemy's shoes, when we learn their story, they cease to be an enemy, and they become somebody we are getting to know that we are now entering into relationship and communion with as hard as it might be for us to even contemplate doing. In his book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, Parker Palmer wrote this, the more you know about another person's story, the less possible it is to see that person as an enemy. Hurt people hurt people. If we can acknowledge just that much about our enemy, we've already begun to create a little bit of space. We might still be light years away from loving them, given the harm that they've caused us, and yet maybe in that space we can begin to at least pray for our enemy, pray for their transformation, pray that God would forgive them even if we can't forgive them, and maybe we never will be able to forgive them. Even being able to do just that much Praying for our enemy is already just a huge major breakthrough. The danger in naming and framing somebody as 
an enemy means we've already begun to dehumanize them, which gives us permission to treat them however we want. And we've seen this over and over again, even, even in our current time, particularly in the political realm. If we can name somebody as the enemy, it's not too far away from engaging in harmful, violent rhetoric or speech, and then harmful, violent rhetoric or actions follow that rhetoric. We've seen that happen over and over again. Martin Luther King's creed of nonviolence surprised, came as a surprise to many Americans, although it shouldn't really because Christianity is the dominant religion in our country. And for those who profess to be Christian, that should not have been surprised that King as a follower of Jesus would advocate love of enemy and nonviolence. But it was also this teaching of nonviolence was offensive to many in the black community as well. Famous black psychologist Kenneth Clark called loving one's enemy psychologically burdensome. Malcolm X accused King of working, quote, to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of an attack. Stokely Carmichael thought betting on nonviolence was naive because it depended on the opponent having a conscience, which was an unreliable assumption in white America, according to Carmichael. In other words, love your enemies is so radical, even radicals had a challenge making it happen, accepting it, adopting it, doing it. Radicals who, by the way, were not wrong in their own opinions and feelings and assessments and beliefs, but they just couldn't go quite that far. Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, took this Christ, Messiah, anointed thing to a whole new level, unique because of this very unique teaching on loving one's enemy. A Messiah who was not only just for one group or one nation, but for all nations, for all people, for all humanity. And that's why Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, is for Christians the name above every other name. If MLK, if Martin Luther King Jr. walked into the room, if Malcolm X walked in the room by some miracle, Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu and all of these amazing luminaries who did incredible work on behalf of humanity, if I find myself in the same room as those amazing people by some miracle of God, I would be in awe. I would be impressed beyond words. I would be tongue-tied trying to express my gratitude for the work that they did. If Jesus walked in the room, I would find myself kneeling and probably not saying very much. And by the way, a few of those other people would probably be joining me <laughs> in kneeling as well. That's the difference. Our names, what we call ourselves, it matters. Understanding Yeshua's name also matters, but what matters most to Yeshua, I believe, is living an anointed life, following as best we can, however imperfectly, learning to love God, to love ourselves, to love our neighbors, and yes, even to love our enemies. That is the doorstep 
to the kingdom. Amen. Ashe. Namaste. Namaste.